we would like to kick off this Pastor Appreciation Month with uh, two items. First of all, we know how much you like to go outdoors. I do. Your family, your family enjoys the outdoors. So we got you a oh. poppy pass for yeah, California thank you. State Parks. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, secondly, uh, Susan would like to come up and say some special words. What? <laughs> I thought you were all supposed to like, check stuff before me for worship. You have to sit down for a second because I have some things. I'm supposed to sit too? Uh, so I talked to Dan about this because I, um, knowing Pastor Appreciation Month this month, um, John's love language is words of affirmation, which it is not my first one to show. So hopefully I get some points for this. And if I get a little teary, I, I, I get points because this is a lot of people. Um, so, and I had this all planned out on what I wanted to say about John this morning. Uh, but apparently, like, so he does a lot of thinking in the shower, and I don't know what kind of blessings he has prayed over our shower, but, like, God is in that space, and there is, like, holy water, and I'm like, okay, apparently I'm rewriting this. Um, I don't know how he showers in the morning, because there's just too much going on. Um, but anyway, I had this question come up in my head, and I'm thinking about, like, how does God use, or how do you see God in your spouse? And I thought it was really cool because for our family, that's not a thing that we have to think too much about. John's mm. in full-time ministry, and we get the blessing of getting a front row seat to that. Um, so, and we have the very interesting dynamic of for the past eight years, at least, um, at least once a week, it's bring your family to work day, um, <laughs> which I'm, a, I'm sorry for the dynamic that that brings. Um, I'm sure it's a lot sometimes. But I remember after he had finished seminary and we were at our first church and he was teaching confirmation, I was sitting in the sanctuary with like 90 kids as, he, as a volunteer and he was preaching on, it wasn't the first week, but there was Jonah involved um, at one point, but he was, he was preaching and I remember thinking like, wow, this is going to be really cool. And not just the lesson for that day or the curriculum he was going through. But what we were going to get to witness as he continues in ministry. So we've got to have a front row seat to that. Um, so in ministry, John has, it's a really weird job. I mean, there are things that involve, um, I mean, during his workday, he gets to study and read, and there's coffee and lunch with people. And I'm like, I want that job. He gets to, I mean, there's been... <laughs> There's been uh, cotton candy machines, there's been trampoline <laughs> parks and movie nights and an insane amount of pizza. Um, and I've always told him, like, you have just the coolest job, but then he also does the really, really hard things. Um, he walks alongside people on their very best and absolute worst days. He helps people and they handle hard situations. He walks alongside them with faithfulness calm and with purpose and intentionality, compassion and joy. And it's in moments like those that I realize how much I've learned from John. I've learned about myself and how to value myself through um, 
value who God has made me to be and my relationship with God. He's demonstrated what a relationship with God can look like, and he helps, um, he keeps Christ as the big picture when I'm a person that really gets bogged down in the details. And he's even the kind of person that, like, if you're studying the Bible at home and you're really frustrated with Paul and don't know what he's talking about, like, you can just send him a text and he'll walk you through your own Bible study during the middle of the day, which is great. So um, I just wanted to say that, John, you're an amazing pastor. The way you love and care for people is extraordinary. You're very intentional and thoughtful, Christ-centered, and it truly has been a pleasure to be beside you as you lead and teach. See, I told you I was going to do this, and I'm not happy about it. (laughs) So in the spirit of Pastor Appreciation Month, Thank you for being you and for letting God use you. Sorry, uh, our scripture today is from Jonah chapter 4, and it's called Jonah's Anger at the Lord's Compassion, or I like to call it Jonah's Being a Jerk. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The word of the Lord. I was looking some uh, online this week, and, you know, many, many religious elite kind of people have tried to define who God is what God is like through the centuries. Um, But what I find so fascinating is there's been a few studies recently, uh, particularly of Americans, where they've kind of taken these people that they consider religious elite out of the equation and looked at just the everyday people of America and how do they view God? What is God like? Uh, So it's not Uh, asking their pastors what they teach theologically God is like. It's just everyday people describe what God is like. Uh, And what I find fascinating is that they 
Uh, one of these studies, they, they kind of categorize us into four different categories of how Americans have answered. And, and as they've studied it, they asked other things on the survey, and they found it has no correlation to what they say, especially among Christians, it has no correlation to what like, denomination they go to. Uh, it has no correlation to what, what church they attend, what region of the country they live in. People in all of these different areas answer in one of these four ways primarily. Uh, so I'm going to just read them off for you. Uh, and the reason being is that the entire book of Jonah, which we're in, this entire book is helping God's people to discern who God is. So this is what God's people have said in America. See if this sounds right to you. Option number one. The authoritative God. The authoritative God is described this way by most people. It says God is like a literal father both engaged in the positive forces of the world and a judge of the behaviors of humankind. Suffering can be the result of social and individual sins. So that's category one. They call it the authoritative God. Category number two, a lot of people describe what they say is a benevolent God. God is mainly a force for good in the world a being who answers prayers of individuals, comforts, or answers prayers, um, and individual comforts and sufferings. And the third one, the critical God. This should make you cringe a little bit, but this is true. This is how people view God. The critical God. God is less likely to be concerned with moments in our lives or moments of the lives of individuals. But we will meet judgment in the next life. It says in the study that this was the most popular opinion amongst the poor and oppressed in America. Like God is not concerned about your everyday life. How could he be, right, if, if this is your situation? So God is not concerned about your everyday life, but in the life to come there will be judgment, and God will sort everything out. Option number four, they called the distant God. God is a cosmic force that sets the laws of human nature in motion, but does not get involved in day-to-day -day events or movements. Those were the only four categories. I don't know about you, but none of them sound great. <laughs> none of them sound like, oh, these are the people that have it all right, and then the rest of them, oh, they're, they're just missing something or they're, or they're misunderstanding or they're not listening well on Sunday mornings. Uh, but the, these are the views of what God is in America. And I think they're probably right. They seem right among people I talk to. So again, the reason I read these is because the entire book of Jonah, which we've been spending several weeks in now, is about answering this same question of who is God? What is God like? How does God interact with people? How does God interact uh, with his followers? How does God interact with those that are not faithful to him, those that are far away from him? What is his character like? And what is it like to live as a follower of God? So we are in week five of this sermon series, uh, there will be a week six. I joked in the beginning, and it wasn't 
fully a joke. <laughs> it's a four-chapter book, uh, and I'm doing six weeks on it. So you get a whole other sermon, uh, but it will be really good. So again, this is week five. It's called Jonah, the Runaway Prophet. Uh, we're focusing on chapter four, um, and the entire premise, if you haven't been here for the other ones, the entire premise is that the book of Jonah is one of these books that, that we've oversimplified over time, I think, in a way that, that makes it comfortable to teach it to children. Uh, so in a way, this is a little bit of a rescue effort from the vegetables, from, from the veggie tales, Jonah. Uh, not bad, but if that's all you max out at, if that's all you've learned is kind of what we're comfortable teaching children, how it makes sense to them, uh, then you don't really know the book of Jonah that well. There, there's a lot of themes here. There's a lot of deeper things going on. So uh, the book of Jonah is one of these books that I just love in Scripture, and here's the reason why. The second you think you figured out Jonah, or you think you figured out the book, it's like a light switch turns on, and all of a sudden the book stops being about this prophet that's running away from God, and a mirror turns on, and you see yourself. And you see ways that you've run from God, or that you've acted this way, or or particularly in this chapter, ways that, that you've maybe seen God uh, have compassion on someone and you're like, God, why don't you just judge them? And we don't say that out loud because that, that's not a real nice thing to say in, in a church. We don't say, God, God, why don't you just judge these people? But inside of us, when the mirror turns on, we go, oh, the second I was ready to write off Jonah as being so terrible... I realize that there's a lot of Jonah in me. So that, that's kind of been the framework we've been looking through the book. So let's, let's dive right in. Let's get right into chapter 4 here. Chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, just as a reminder, Jonah has finally gone to Nineveh. He's preached to them. They've repented. They've turned to God. And God decided right at the end of chapter 3, verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned away from their evil ways, he relented, and he did not bring them destruction that he had threatened. Verse 1, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. So Jonah is sent to preach, and he preaches a word from God, and the, and the people he's preaching to uh, listen and they hear God, and they, they come back to God, or come to maybe for the very first time, they come to God, and, and God shows them compassion, and God's compassion makes Jonah angry. God's graciousness uh, builds up something inside of Jonah, and now he's fuming. You know, typically a prophet would be very happy at this point. I don't know if I need to say that. This is what would normally happen, right? Like you would go somewhere, uh, you would preach, and if the whole city, including the king, turned to God, uh, you would be happy. <laughs> that, that would be the normal response. You would put that on your resume right at the top. Uh, you would get whatever job you wanted uh, because you'd say, you know, Nineveh, the king of all sinners. I'm the prophet that went there. <laughs> that would be normal, but not to Jonah. Jonah is angry, and why is he angry? Let's keep reading, verse 2. It says, he prayed to the Lord, 
Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarsus. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You hear what Jonah's saying here? I've, I've quoted that a few times through this sermon series. Jonah's prayer to God is a prayer that says, isn't this what I said would happen? Come on, God. And he quotes God back to himself. Normally that's a good thing to do, not necessarily in this tone. But he quotes God's very words, how God described himself in the book of Exodus. He quotes it right back to God and he kind of throws it in God's face. This is who I said, this is who you are. You're gracious and you're compassionate. You're slow to anger and you're abounding in love and this is why I'm so angry. It's not fair. Nothing about this is, is fair, God. They did these evil deeds for so many years, for so many generations, and now you're just going to forgive them. Do you get what's going on here? There's, a, there's like a scandal to this amount of grace. I think sometimes we just throw this word grace around, we name our, our little daughters grace, and it's wonderful. But there's a scandal to grace. There, there's something inside of us that says, somebody is not getting what they deserve. And that just doesn't feel right. And again, things that I'm saying out loud, but maybe we don't say out loud that much. But there's somewhere in, inside of us, we say, there's something not right here, God. Why, why is it this way? And again, Jonah throws these words back at God. You are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and that's why I didn't want to go. That's why I ran away, because I knew who you were. I knew well enough who you were, and I knew if you were given the chance that you would forgive these Ninevites. And they don't need to be forgiven. They need to have fire and brimstone rain down on them. So he's mad. Like I said, this, this is a description of God from the book of Exodus, and actually continues all the way through the Old Testament. Many, many times this is quoted, but where it's first said, book of Exodus... It's how God describes himself after the golden calf incident. So, so God doesn't just wipe out all of the Israelites after they turn from God. And, and Moses goes to God and he says, why didn't you wipe them all out? Why didn't you do it? And, and this, these are the words God says. He says, I didn't wipe them out because I'm gracious and compassionate. Because I'm slow to anger, because I'm abounding in love. Here's just a little recap of that story, in case you're not as familiar. So, so the people of God have been freed from Egypt, and they're out in the desert, and, and they hear God's voice coming from the mountain, and, and God uh, verbally gives them the Ten Commandments. And then uh, Moses goes up onto the mountain. Actually, God, uh, if I'm not mistaken, invites all of them to go up. They say, uh, this is a little scary. How about we just send Moses? Uh, the, the people say, we will follow God, but, but let's just send Moses up there. And Moses is up there for 40 days. 
and, and there's the presence of God, and there's smoke, and it, it says it looks like the whole top of the mountain's on fire. And the people are afraid, and 40 days passes, and they think Moses is a goner. So they get nervous that Moses is not coming back, and, and they decide to, to worship God, to take God into their own hands, to decide for themselves how they're going to worship this God. And, and they take all the gold that they have, which is probably the gold that, that as they left Egypt, they were told to, to take gold as they left. So they take that very gold, that very gift from God, and they molt it, and they melt it down, and they build for themselves a golden calf. And, and they say, this golden calf is God. And they use God's name. Uh, they don't just build for themselves an idol and say it's a different God. They say, this is actually God, this calf. And, and they, they praise it, and they party, and they have this whole event. And Moses is still on the mountain. And remember, they already were given the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. But commandment number two, you shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or in the waters below. So God sees this. Moses doesn't see it. It's too far away. But God sees what's going on down there. And he sends Moses off the mountain. And this is what God says. He says, look at what your people have done. I never really noticed that much before, but up until this point, they're always God's people. <laughs> now he says to Moses, look at what your people <laughs> have done. And he sends Moses down, and, and I won't get into the details, but, but they are all deserving of God's wrath. They've already agreed to these commandments, and, and they've entered in the very first thing they did was break this agreement with God. But God spares most of them. Not all of them, but God spares most of them. And Moses goes up and he asks God why. Why did you spare these people that have clearly turned away from you? And this is what God says about himself. This is Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. God, referring to himself, says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's how God describes himself. Do you see the irony here in Jonah's statement? Let me, let me just make it very obvious. Jonah is an Israelite. The only reason Jonah exists, the only reason his ancestors exist, the only reason he's walking the earth is because this is who God is. Coming off the mountain, God, God had every right to just wipe them out. Actually, said, He said at one point that he was going to, he's going to start over with Moses. It's going to be Moses' descendants now. And God was compassionate and gracious, and it's the only reason Jonah has life in the first place. But this is often the story of the church. The story of the people who have been forgiven. The story of the people that have received the forgiveness of the cross, 
but then sometimes can be hard to hand that out to others. It's the story of the people who who only exist because of who God is, because of his graciousness, because of his love, because of his compassion for us, but yet the story of a group of people who look around and try to decide for themselves who's deserving of this compassion, who's deserving of this God. You know, it's interesting how often we try to make our own rules and try to justify ourselves in, in situations. And one uh, fairly light example for you. Do you know what an orange light is when you're driving? It's halfway between yellow and red. <laughs> On a stoplight, right? I realize we don't have many in Arnold, but you're all familiar. I know you are. And, and often where I, where I see this the most and where I've done it the most is a left turn lane, right? You get the arrow and it's green. And if, if this is a normal turn for you, if this is uh, maybe part of your commute uh, or, or near your house, you know how long that light is. I guarantee you do. And when those people are lined up, you're, you're counting and you're saying, this, this is only a five car arrow. And, and the second it turns, you're like, okay, let's move here. Let's get going. And the car doesn't, and someone honks, and you're like, you're my hero. Uh, I don't want to honk. That would be rude, but you're my hero for being the one that honked. Uh, and then they go, and then let's say you're car number six. And all of a sudden, this whole idea of having possession of the intersection uh, makes a lot of sense, right? So, so it's, it's, it's an orange light at this point. It's so close to red. <laughs> that, it's, that it's orange and, and you start turning and, and you go through and, and then sometimes the, it's, it's so orange that, that the light already turns green because it's red but, but, it's so, but, but in your mind you're like yeah but I need to take this left I need to do this this is, this is what I need to, I'm in a hurry today we have all these reasons you know, it's, it's not my fault I had to go through the red. It's the person in the front of the line that didn't get moving right away. I, I had every right to go through. I'm car number five. This is, this is a five-car turn. Uh, and, and we kind of decide it all, right? Now, what happens when you're facing the other direction at the intersection? And the people are taking a left in front of you. Are they as justified for making you wait? Yes or no? No one? Of course they're not. They are terrible human beings. What are they doing? They have a turn lane, and they're supposed to turn, and you turn on the green, you don't turn on the orange, and, and, and you go into the intersection, and you get out of here, so when my light turns green, I better be able to move. Oh, we are fickle, aren't we? <laughs> It is amazing how much in life, again, a light example, but amazing how much in life, right and wrong and, and our own uh, ideas of justice and our ideas of what is, what is going on that, that is good and that is bad, we can excuse away so much. And Jonah's doing the same thing here. Jonah's looking at these Ninevites and he's saying, God, they've been so bad 
for so long that they were, they were so cruel to my people, people that were close to me in, in, in our own Israelite cities. And there's historical accounts of that. That's not out of nowhere. And, and yet, God wants to be compassionate to them. Now, God, back when you were compassionate to me and my people, that was good. That we accepted, that we, that we talk about all the time, and we're so grateful for who you are. But now you want to be compassionate to my enemies, and, and now uh, I'm not so sure I like this God anymore. That's the point where Jonah gets to. Verse 3, we find out how much he doesn't like living in a world with this God. Verse 3, Jonah says, Now, Lord, take my life away from me. For it is better for me to die than live. Now, this is not just Jonah being dramatic. I think it's easy to read it and say, oh, Jonah, you're just, you're sounding so dramatic right now. It's, that's not necessarily what's going on. What's going on is, is he has learned who God is. And he has learned that God not only loves him and loves his people, but God loves his enemies. And Jonah is not so sure he wants to live in a world with a God like that. Actually, he's sure he doesn't. If that's how God is going to play this game, if that's how God is going to behave in this world, then then just take me out of this world, God. This is not uh, where I want to be. It's not the kind of God I like to have. Now, how does God respond? Or maybe the first question, how would you respond if you were God? I would say probably good thing for Jonah that you're not. (laughs) Good thing for Jonah that I am not God, because because if I was God, I think I might squish him. Or maybe one of those lightning bolts. Just boom. Bye-bye, prophet. You were a problem for four chapters. (laughs) For four chapters here, you've been an issue. And and, and again, it's very lucky for Jonah that, that I am not God. Uh, because how does God respond? And I'll give you a hint. God is gracious and compassionate. God is slow to anger, and God is abounding in love. That's how God responds. And three times, and I'll go through fairly quickly, three times God tries to get Jonah's attention. Three different attempts. Here's attempt number one. God just, just calls it like it is, verse 4, and it says, But the Lord... Or, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Let me just say it how it is, Jonah. Is this right? Is this way that you're thinking? Do you really feel justified in your anger? Do you really feel like this is uh, the way you you could behave or a way that makes sense? Verse 5, we find out that Jonah just didn't respond. At this point, it doesn't say that Jonah said this back to God. It just moves on. Jonah just ignored that. Verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made for himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. 
So instead of answering God, Jonah just goes outside the city and sits down. Maybe, maybe God's not smiting this city yet because I'm still in it. So, so let me get out of the city. <laughs> let me leave. Let me go sit over there. Let me be safe. And let me sit down and watch the show because certainly uh, God's got to change his mind. Come on. You've seen these Ninevites. So he makes for himself a makeshift shelter to partially shade himself uh, from the sun. It's, it's pretty obvious Jonah plans on hanging out for a while. You don't make a shelter if you're only there for 10 minutes. Uh, so he makes himself a shelter. He's there, and he's waiting to see if God will come to his senses. Do you realize how ridiculous that sounds? <laughs> Again, sometimes the mirror turns on <laughs> in this book. So... So sometimes uh, we read things and we go, Jonah, you're so ridiculous. You're waiting to, you're waiting to see if God will come to his senses, if, if he will finally do what, what you think he should do, and then you realize in yourself, oh, wait. <laughs> There's times in my life where I think I know the answer so well that I'm just waiting for God to come to his senses, and then he'll finally catch up with me, <laughs> and, and then, then we'll be on a smooth path again. Maybe, maybe Jonah thinks that the Ninevites are going to repent from their repentance. You know, they've turned back to God, but this can't be long-lived. So, so maybe they're just going to turn back around, uh, and then God finally can, can rain fire down upon them. So Jonah's there, he's waiting in the sun, and God does attempt number two to get his attention. I call this attempt the plant. And it's a little odd, but stick with me here. Verse 6, Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah and give shade to his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. It's a little odd. Again, Jonah's very happy about the plant. The first time in the entire book that Jonah has been happy at all about anything, and he's very happy about this plant. Verses 7 and 8. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And God says to Jonah in verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Well, that's question number two. So, so let's put the Ninevites to the side for now. We'll get back to them. Now let's just talk about this plant, Jonah. Is it even right for you to be angry about this plant? Does that even make sense? You, you sat here, you were in the sun, you tried to make yourself a good enough shelter, it, it wasn't great, and I blessed it, you and I, and I brought this plant up in a day and it gave you shade and you loved it so much, and just as quickly as I built it up, I took it away and now you're angry about the plant too. Is that right? Second half of verse 9. Jonah finally answers God. It is 
he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Come on, Jonah. <laughs> Again, the second we say, Jonah is so far gone, it, it just kind of turns the mirror, right? And all of a sudden we're just like, come on, book of Jonah. <laughs> like, give, give me a break here. The, the second I write him off as being so far gone, all of a sudden I'm like, I don't know, what's the plant in my life? You know, it's like a whole other sermon series. And then God does attempt number three. This is verse 10 and 11. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about the plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprung up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. So those last words of Jonah, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead, those are his last words recorded in the book. I don't know if they're his last words, but <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. But they're his last words that are written down in the book. The rest of this is all just this speech from God explaining it. And then it ends very abruptly and also many animals. Almost to the point where it makes you want to chuckle. There's so many people in this city. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hands from their left? And by the way, there's also a lot of animals there. I, I, I have concern for the animals. You're concerned about this plant, Jonah. You're worried about this plant. And so there's also these many animals. Jonah, you love this plant so much, can't I at least love the people of Nineveh? People made in my image. People made in a way like their God, and people who can't tell their right hand from their left. Now, I love this, this phrase. This is a Hebrew word phrase, can't tell their right hand from their left. Uh, it doesn't mean that they can't tell right from wrong. I think that's often a misunderstanding because, well, first of all, it can't mean that because I think God is serious about judging them if they don't turn around. And if they can't tell right from wrong, then, then what's he judging them for? So it's not that they can't tell right from wrong. It's actually that they don't know what direction to go. That's what this phrase means. They have no leaders. They, they're leaderless. God, God sent them a prophet, but, but he's sitting outside the walls. So, so they're leaderless. They have no one to guide them. And what this phrase means is, is they constantly go left when they should be going right. So that's what it means. They can't tell their left from their right. And then the book ends. And we never hear Jonah's response. And we don't know what happened to him. And in many ways, I think this last quote from God um, I think it ends abruptly and that we don't need to know what Jonah did because it's not necessarily about Jonah at this point. 
This is where the book becomes so obvious that this, this mere thing I've been talking about, this is where it's from. This is where I brought it back through the book. This is what's going on here. This is why it ends, because this question is not a question for Jonah exclusively. This is a question for you and for me and for anyone that reads this book. It's a God that is saying, how, how do you feel about a God that loves you but also loves your enemies? Let me read it again. Let me read it again because it's for you. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprung up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hands from their left, and also many animals? How do you feel about a God that not only loves you, but loves your enemies? That's the question in the book of Jonah. And maybe right now, you're thinking, I think I'm okay with that. I think I might be okay with it. I think I might be in a better place than Jonah. I think I might uh, be able to understand that and be okay with that. Well, let me just bring this part up. Jesus takes it another step further. Oh, here he comes. I think you probably know where I'm going with this. Matthew 5, verse 44. Not just a God that loves your enemies, but here, Jesus says, love your enemies. You love them. Not just God. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't know how many steps further that is. But now it's not just about a God that loves your enemies, but now, but now God is saying, you love them. And it can't be done without God's help. You see, that's where we need God. We, we need this God alongside us. We need this God with us. We need this God through us and in every part of us that is the very same God who showed mercy and compassion to the Ninevites. When they turned back to God, we, we need that God in order for us to live the same way. Out in a world that is not fair. Out in a world that is not easy. And um, I will end with this. It's just a sneak peek of next week. Like I said, we're, we're through the book of Jonah, um, but next week we're going to kind of flip the script a little bit. Here's your teaser, uh, in case you were wondering if you're coming back. Uh, here's your teaser. Next week it's going to flip the script, and we're going to look at it. We're going to say this whole time we've been looking at the book of Jonah as if the person we're supposed to learn from is Jonah. As if uh, the whole point of the lesson is to say, oh, Jonah ran from God, would I run from God? Jo Jonah was ignoring God, would I ignore God? Right? We kind of put ourselves in the place of Jonah. And the more and more I've read this book, uh, the more I've come to realize I don't think we're Jonah in the story. We're actually Nineveh.
And that's going to be next week's sermon. We're not Jonah. We're Nineveh. We, we are the people who are in desperate need of the good news. We are in desperate need of a Savior. And here's, here's the awesome news in that. The one who came to us didn't run away. Our Savior ran to us. Our Savior came, came down low and lived with us and, and didn't give some five-word sermon and then leave the city. Our, our Savior stayed with us and He sent His Holy Spirit to dwell with us. So, so while we may be like Nineveh, uh, thank God Jesus is not like Jonah. Um, amen? Amen. Amen.